This is episode number three of the Boston Broadside podcast. A lot of people have been asking us to do podcasts to give you a little bit insight um, into the paper, things you may not have seen, um, the things you may not have had contacts with, uh, met some of the writers at, at some of our various events. One of them is with me here today, and that is Greg Hessian, and uh, he is an attorney. He's been an attorney in Massachusetts uh, with, with the Commonwealth since 1993, doing family law, civil law, and Greg has been writing for the paper uh, a column which he calls Free the Law, and uh, he runs Mass Outrage, and uh, we're talking about there are very few people that you meet in your life that you know right away they are solid, they are great, and you want to, uh, boy, you want to give them a showcase in your newspaper, and you want to call them a friend. So, Greg, I know that uh, we've only known each other kind of... uh, remotely and through things and through articles for a short period of time, but I just want to say thank you and thank you for being here. Glad to be able to be here. Thank you. Why don't you tell us a little bit uh, about yourself so the, so, the, so the listeners get a sense. Uh, they can read you in you know almost every edition of the Boston Broadside. We, we mix things up here and there a little bit, and uh, I believe you wanted to talk today about dealing with the government. Yes, I do. That's one of the major things that I do in my law practice, and thanks for the opportunity, because I think that most people assume, Lonnie, that when you're dealing with somebody from the government or you happen to go to court for something or you're dealing with a police officer or perhaps a a clerk at some agency, that everything's on the level, and if you just say the truth, everything's going to be fine, you'll get justice, and it'll all turn out well. Now, that might have been true a few decades ago, but it's not anymore. And we need a new instruction book. We really do, because people are having their freedom taken away, their money taken away, and their kids taken away because they haven't learned how to deal with the new government that we now have. And it's, I run into this all the time, and it's the, it's the biggest thing that I have to deal with in my practice is people having all of these things taken from them and then trying to help them get them back because they did not know. And here's what they typically would say, Lonnie. They will say, well, I have nothing to hide. I'll just tell them everything. And that is the worst thing you can do in a government that is so big and so powerful and so against people who believe in the Constitution and the way it was. Uh, It's my belief now that the Constitution is pretty much a dead letter. They don't follow it. They don't believe in it. They have this pretense or facade of it, and they'll uh, quote it from time to time. But by and large, uh, we're in a really different situation now than we might have been a number of decades ago. And it's not on the level anymore, and it's not – our rights are not being appropriately protected by the state – or the federal constitutions anymore. So we have to learn a new way. So maybe some of the things that I share today will help people and get them prepared, I guess you could say. So when they're when they're dealing with their next government bureaucrat, police officer, DCF person or whatever, they'll have a lot better, uh, a lot more preparation, I guess you could say, on, on how to handle that. Give us a couple horror stories. I'm sure it's very easy. We've had some in the paper of... Something that somebody thought would be so simple to do and respond, but they did the wrong thing. Well, sure. Um, he, for example, if you're dealing with, I mean, one of my favorite, uh, it's not favorite, but one of the things that I find so many people have had problems with is the Department of Children and Families in the Commonwealth. 
and it's a major, major problem. That department has 5,000 employees. They have, uh, they have a, at any one time in the Commonwealth something like 10,000 children in custody at any one time in the Commonwealth, and nationwide close to 500,000 children at any one time uh, in all the states. So it is a very big thing. And if you look at all the statistics, it's very likely that um, a large percentage of people that are listening to this today have had to deal with DCF at some level. And I think over, if you if you really work it out over 10 years, probably something like half the people have had some dealings with DCF. That's a lot. We refer to it as DCF, as, instead of Department of Children and Families, destroying children and families. Yeah, I guess that's probably the way our Department of Child Filching, or I mean, everybody thinks of acronyms, of course, but they, it's, it's an agency that's completely out of control. And people don't realize that. You know, the, the, the facade, what's advertised is, well, they're here to protect children from abuse and neglect. They're doing a great public service. And in some cases, of course, children are neglected or abused, and they certainly need to be taken from that circumstance. But it's only a very, very small percentage of the people that they deal with who are in an uh, actual drastic abusive or neglectful situation that's causing bodily harm or very serious psychic harm. Uh, the bulk of them are cases that are, you could call them administrative. So the the agency comes in, um, does a one of two things. Either they use the whole SWAT team police state thing, bang down your door and take them out, or they do in what would be called maybe a clinical or an administrative case, and they stay involved with your family for a year or two, come in all the time, impose certain things, make you do various classes or... Uh, programs and that sort of things in an effort to fix you because you're you need fixing sort of like a machine and um, these people in DCF and this is something that almost nobody realized they don't have a training protocol or manual it's unbelievable so they're sending people who could just come out of a say a social work degree or even worse, a social justice degree from like Wellesley College or Simmons or someplace, and they will put them into DCF. And then these people, many of whom are childless, don't know, they have no idea how kids are, and particularly how teenagers are. And so they just believe anything without uh, knowing how to sort the, the wheat from the chaff. And of course, kids say things. And uh, exes who are trying to get vengeance find it very easy to beguile these social workers or the next door neighbor who's upset at you or um, the school who doesn't like a parent. All these people have an opportunity to report parents to this so-called hotline, this, this child abuse hotline, which is an 800 number that you can call and just report this. And it starts a case. It's, it's very much akin to uh, the Soviet method and the Cuban method of having snitches. And there were always snitches in these communist countries. And if you snitched on your neighbor, you could get their apartment. 
if you snitched on their on your neighbor, you could get rid of the pesky neighbor. And this is what happens. I mean, we literally have a snitch hotline. And if people call this, the agency is going to come out, and there's a possibility if you handle it wrong that they are going to take those children right then and there, or maybe take them a little bit further on. There was a case that we had in the paper. There's been several articles, but I'm thinking highly about one that was a snitch, if you will, and it was a land dispute with a with a neighbor. And uh, in the middle of the night, uh, two police officers and a couple of members of the DCF staff showed up in front of this person's house, um, and uh, they were going to take his kids. And uh, the wife was crying, and uh, the, their report was that he was whipping them, and they had scars all over their backs. He's a very strong individual, and this has been in the paper, so I don't want to, you know, take up your time too much with it. But uh, he said, great, stay right there, officers. He called up to the house, come on down, had both kids come down, says, take your shirts off, let them examine you. And then after they did that, of course, there's not a, there's not a scratch on them. He laid into them like there was no tomorrow. Um, that, uh, that neighbor, by the way, ended up doing jail time. And that's, I know that's a unique case, but it was one of many things that that neighbor had done uh, to terrorize his family. So. Yeah, and, and the, the, the problem with a lot of this is these snitches are anonymous, Yep. and the law uh, protects all but the most egregious of these things, like you just talked about. But most people who make a report, even if it's false or for a completely um, fabricated uh, information or if it's for an ulterior motive, they don't pay a price. The only people that pay the price is the children and the, well, and the parents, of course, who wake up every morning without their kids there. So oh, I'm thinking you know, what I was going to then yeah. explain is how to deal with those. So if this comes to your life. That's what I wanted to get. Get the example. Of, if someone shows up at the do. door. Yes, exactly. What, what Here's you do. what you need to do. Okay. So first thing is, is you do have something to hide. Almost every single person that sat in my office chair crying, their tale of woe, they lost their children, or DCF is there constantly and just ruining their lives, have said to me, I thought I had nothing to hide. I just talked to them. I told them everything about me. The problem is, is that we don't know what they're looking for. See, this little squinky the social worker person who's, who's got no kids and has read maybe a book or two on how to, uh, how to do social work is looking for something very different than parents are. They're not on the same planet. So you're talking one language and they're talking an entirely different language. Children are taken out of homes because they complain that the parents take their cell phones away. I kid you not. They are literally taken for that reason. Amazing they have a cell phone to begin with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so the kid complains about this. And, of course, the, the 20-something social worker who's only been raised on having a cell phone from when she was three or something um, thinks, well, this is a crime against humanity. This is horrible. <laughs> Whereas, you know, anybody who's, who's got a mind and understands parental discipline and parental rights would say, well, okay, the parent is trying to discipline the child by using the uh, cell phone, taking the cell phone privileges away. It's, they are in a completely different world than most parents are. So the parents are trying to deal with K-12 
kids that may be discipline problems, and particularly when they become teenagers. The social workers go into their schools, tell them that if you don't like something the parent's doing, you give us a call at the hotline and we'll see to that. So the kids actually know in some cases all they have to do is make an allegation of abuse or neglect against the parent and they can get out of the house in many cases and go to a foster home and see the boyfriend that the parents wouldn't let them see or go to, you know, be able to use the media that the parents wouldn't let them use, this kind of a thing. The DCF is, is allied with the state against parents. And very few social workers understand that parents need an assistance in helping to discipline and bring structure to their homes, not the other way around. Now, these are... So when dealing with these kinds of people, you, you have to recognize what they're, where they're coming from. So you don't say much. So what you do is when the little social worker comes along, you put out the, uh, the, the water and the cookies or something and be very, very nice and don't tell them anything. You don't tell them how your home operates. And, you know, if they're small children, just say, yeah, we use time out for discipline or something of that sort. But, but most of the things that people tell them, they may say, well, yeah, I had a drug problem a few years ago and it was really bad and I had all this trouble. And yeah, my, my husband was really mean to me and uh, he yelled at me. And it, you know, things that this may seem innocuous, but they say these things because the social workers draw them out and try to get somebody to make these sorts of admissions. And pretty soon, this, the paper, all these things show up on a report somewhere. And pretty soon, this looks is looking like abuse and neglect and all kinds of horrible things. And now DCF's involved in your life for the next decade. And that is not what you want. Just be quiet. Don't talk to these people. Just say, nice day we're having, isn't it? And that's about it. Okay. You don't give them your life. Don't talk about your life. Don't talk about, oh, yeah, when I was a kid, yeah, my parents were awful. Yeah, they were, they were, uh, they were alcoholics or this. Don't tell them about your past. Don't tell them about your struggles with addiction. Don't tell them about your struggles with the children's discipline. Don't tell them about the fact that the kid got um, sent home from school because he was being bad at school or something. All this stuff is going to just completely come back against you. I mean, the, the basic concept is this. Shut up. People don't realize this. Just shut up. Don't say anything. They want to, um, they, they want to uh, be defensive, you know, and, and come across well to the social workers. So they just spill all the beans. So that's one type of place. Well, that's what I was going to say. Uh, people's natural inclination is somebody's in there. You want to talk to them. In fact, I'm sure there are some parents who have actually called DCF thinking they're going to get yeah. assistance and help. It's oh, like yes, yes. And about, if you have a child that's, yeah. that's acting up, which many people do, oh, call DCF. They'll give me some help. Well, here's the help you will get. Two, uh, two Susie the social worker types will come to your home and they'll note that, hmm, well, we have, jeez, um, uh, there's dishes in the sink here. You know, this house is disheveled. Uh, and look, the dog just did a poop on the rug here. Man, what's going on here? This place is a hellhole. We got to take your, it, it, you see what I'm saying. It's just, um, you can't do this. 
you don't ask the government for help ever uh that needs to be job one never ask the government for help now i mean and this applies if, if having to deal with a police officer now the the place you deal with police officers is sometimes um in speeding tickets or that sort of stuff a lot of people don't even know how to handle that properly they get upset at their officer they they say something smart alecky about donuts or whatever oh come on you can't do that you, you when, when dealing with somebody from the government you have to be respectful and quiet so you say yes officer what's the concern what's the problem uh, well, gee, I didn't realize that, uh, that, that I was doing that. I, I'm so sorry. Or, gee, I'm from three towns over. I didn't know that there was a, a, a speed limit right here. This isn't an area I normally go into. B, just don't say much. Just don't say much. And, and, and this, is, this is the same thing with almost all bureaucrats is we have more and more agencies. I mean, you're going to see people from, uh, here's a, here's a perfect horror story from the um, Department of Environmental Protection. Same exact thing. This poor elderly woman, she wants to get um, a new boiler in her house. And with a lot of people, just like the old one, have this, this white asbestos on it. A lot of people have that. And from the Department of Environmental Protection, asbestos is like nuclear waste, even though it isn't, but they say it is. So she she gets a couple estimates. She decides not to go with the first guy. She hires the second guy. The second guy shows her the license numbers that he's a licensed asbestos removal contractor and a plumber. He was neither, as it turns out. Wow. Well, I mean, people, how, how are you supposed to know? It's on a stationery, gives a license number and everything else. Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll take care of this. So so the, the first contractor calls back and says, what's going on? And um, she tells him and tells the name of this other guy. Well, the first guy knows that the other guy isn't licensed. Just a fluke, just a complete fluke. So you know what he does? He rats her out to the Department of Environmental Protection because he's ticked off that he didn't get the job. So now they do a, now they, they do a, a, um, a, a complete investigation and instead of getting the fake plumber asbestos removal guy, they're coming against this poor elderly homeowner who didn't do anything wrong at all. And they do this massive investigation. She's got to get an attorney. They have hearings. And nothing happened, by the way. The guy just simply took the boiler out and the asbestos. We don't even know where it is. No. But now, this has been going on for two years. This poor woman. Two years of hearings and problems and issues over some guy that just simply misstated his license. So these sort of things, you have to learn how to deal with the government in a, in a very different way than we're used to dealing with because they're not playing nice anymore. I want, to give a, I want to give a quick example because uh, you mentioned police officers and I am related to many actually, and some retired and some active, uh, local and state, and actually in Texas Trooper too. Um, they gave me the advice which says if you're asked... Just say, 
I don't know, a few things. For example, if they ask you, you coming out of the grocery store, what'd you buy? Cheeks, I don't know, I bought a few things. Um, because if you go and say to them, and they're obviously engaging with you for a reason, you, you've been identified as a suspect for something, maybe there was a robbery next door and you fit the profile, and uh, you say to them right there and then, um, I, I, I got eggs and uh, milk and uh, uh, cereal. And uh, right. okay, and they take down your information. Six months later, you're in court. And the uh, prosecutor goes to you and said, okay, so when you spoke to the police officer, it says here, according to the police officer's report, that you said you bought milk, eggs, and cereal. Uh, we went back through the, the, through the register receipt and through the video uh, of the event there, and we see that you also bought a pack of gum at the counter and a magazine. You didn't tell the police officer that. So are you lying to the court now, or were you lying then? Oh, yes. And now your credibility is blown. Because yeah. you're like, uh, I, 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 milk, egg, I, cereals. That's what you came for, and that's what's in your mind. And now you're being accused of lying. So when you say, don't talk, they tell me. Police officers say, don't talk to the police. Say hello. Be friendly. That's yeah. about it. That is the absolute best advice in the world. Couldn't agree more. <clears throat> and so, but, and in Massachusetts, I think things are in a more more advanced state of deterioration than a lot of other places. We have a government here that is gigantic, very controlling, and you, you would be hard-pressed to find one thing that they don't regulate. I can't even think of a thing that they don't regulate. Well, just to uh, give the listeners a, a, a concept, if you can wrap your mind around it, um, I think it was five, six, seven years ago or so that I looked up the budget for DCF, the Department of Children and Families, and it was almost a billion dollars then. So yes. when you talk about all those people with nothing to do, but they find things to do with a billion dollars worth of budget. Oh, they do. And, what, and that's the tip of the iceberg, because what DCF is, is told to do on the management level is to leverage other federal money by putting as many kids as possible into special education, into therapy, into drugs. I have had many, not one, many six-year-olds who have been taking many psychotropic drugs. Six-year-olds. Six-year-olds are not insane. They do not need psychotic drugs. And yet they do this because they leverage massive amounts of federal reimbursements putting children into these kinds of programs and having these sorts of diagnoses. And uh, they, so they get medical ones, psychiatric ones, and educational ones by getting them into special ed programs and other things of this sort. And but What they've uh, almost they managed talk- to do, though, is they've almost managed in some ways to make some of these special ed programs, it's almost like a, uh, a designer bag, a Gucci bag. Oh, my, my, my kid's getting, you know, an IEP, an Individualized Education Plan. My, my kid's in special yeah. ed. So uh, some people get sucked into things that cause detriment to their children that they don't need it. A good uh, example when you talk about drugs. So just about that age and just about, I forget how many years ago, a couple of decades ago. I'm exaggerating, maybe 10 years or so ago. um, Someone I know um, gets a call from the school, has to go in, both parents and stuff like that. And uh, I won't use his real name. I'll say little Johnny wasn't behaving well. And so they want to put him on prescription medication. Well, it just happens that this, da- this the dad is a pharmacist. 
And so he says no. <laughs> and he explains to them what the drugs are and what the drugs do, etc., 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 and asks them for details what it was that their son had done and done with that. He goes, okay, you know, in the olden days, you know, I'd ask you to, you know, whack him across the knuckles and get his attention. He's a boy. You're having him sit there for an hour in, inter, uninterrupted. Uh, you need to make your class a little bit more engaging. And if he's acting out, then we, we need to take other action, but not drugs. And yeah. uh, so that was the end of it. Oh, that, that kid's a genius now. I mean, he's an absolute genius. He was never drugged, and he's an absolute genius. But that's their first go-to. Oh, that young boy the, acting and, out, and let's put him on drugs. plenty of other money. So the billion dollars is, is the seed money. And it allows them to, you know, put their feelers out into all this other federal reimbursements. Massive, massive amounts of it. So what advice, I, I know we've gone on for a little bit, but what advice uh, do you want to give? And I do want you to give contact information or whatever you may wish to give. You, you talked about uh, putting together, we had talked about you putting together a, a booklet of some kind on dealing with DCF based on all the columns you had written in the past uh, for the broadside. But now you've got some other ventures you're going to be doing also. So share with us. Well, I'm hoping to put together a series of uh, YouTube or Rumble videos to help parents for different family law issues, you know, DCF, restraining orders. That's another complete uh, mess. And, uh, and other civil rights issues where people have contact with the government. And, uh, and it's the same thing, by the way, in dealing with a child's school. When you're dealing with the school, these people are exactly the same. It's all of a piece. They're all from the same sorts of universities, from the same doctorate programs, from the same mental conditioning. The people that run all of these things, which are all tied in together, will have a very similar thinking pattern. You cannot go to your child's school and present to them your belief that you are the parent and you have rights and these people work for you, and you pay their salary, and that sort of stuff. They will throw you right out on your ear. You can't do it. It's all true, by the way, but they won't listen to that because they believe that the children belong to them. It, just like DCF does, the school believes your children belong to the school, and they're going to indoctrinate them appropriately. And uh, you don't win those battles with people who are so... Um, who are so ideological like that and have power. And it's those two factors that matter. Ideological people don't matter if they don't have power, but the problem is, is you take these ideologues, these very Marxist ideologues, and then you give them power. And it's the power that's the problem. And they end up exercising that power over so many parents in so many situations. Um, so you have to handle it very, very differently. And you can't tell them the truth. It, just like uh, just like that few good men, you know, the uh, Jack Nicholson quote, you can't handle the truth. They can't. They literally cannot handle the truth. They are so ideologically blinded that if you come in and tell them the truth, and we, we've seen this, you know, people who keep up with the news, for example, in, uh, remember that the Department of Justice was actually um, investigating parents who went to school board meetings and said, no, you can't teach my children that they ought to be transgendered or read these perverted books and things of that sort. The Department of Justice of the United States government was investigating parents who stood up and said, our children, we're to direct 
the upbringing of our children, which, by the way, is the law. And uh, parents, it is the law that parents are to direct the upbringing of their children. But the government doesn't believe that. They think they should be directing the upbringing of the children. So you really are in a complete pitched battle here. And you got to handle it very wisely because if you if you say the truth to them, they're just – it's not going to work unless it's just a traditionalist there. And there's a few peppered here and there, obviously. I don't mean that every single person is that way. But you find me a school superintendent who doesn't think that way. I would be very surprised because they all went to the same graduate schools. They all learned the same Marxist ideology. And, and naturally, it just filters right down throughout the entire school system. And uh, it really puts parents in a terrible place. And, and parents go in and they think, well, I'm, I, I'm just being reasonable here. And they are, but they can't be heard. So it's, uh, it, it really requires a whole new type of thinking, particularly in, in states like ours in Massachusetts. Uh, and, and that's one of the reasons I want to put this stuff together so parents can help. I do already have a website. It's massoutrage, one word, dot com. There's a lot of information about family law on that, and it might help parents. A lot of parents have been helped to get through full family law, uh, DCF, and restraining order situations with the information on that website. Excellent. Um, <clears throat> sorry there for coughing. Uh, early in, in, our, in our podcast career here, this is number three. Um, Attorney Hessian, um, you've written so much. You've had a lot of success. You've shared with me privately some of your success. But you've also shared some things where uh, I guess it's they're too late to the game. In other words, somebody did something, uh, they're involved in something, and they call you too late because they've made some, they've already made their mistakes. And now you're playing catch up or you can't help them. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, you know, when does somebody contact an attorney and who and, and how and, and go to that website? Uh, it's, uh, to me, it's like you need a fire extinguisher in your house before you have a fire. You don't say, oh, cheeks, I got a fire going on. All right, I'll be back in half an hour. I got to go to Home Depot. That is so true. That is so true. Uh, particularly in the area of family law, which is one of the things I do focus on, uh, I have viewed this, I have so many data points that I now call it the iron triangle of family law. And typically what happens in a family law situation where, like you say, it's gone too far, say, for example, somebody decides they want to get rid of the spouse or the boyfriend. They may go to the, the district court and they may get a restraining order. Throws the other person out. Now, if they're married, that really fractures the relationship and oftentimes that then, then leads to a divorce. But here's the problem. If you get a restraining order, the police in almost every single case call the Department of Children and Families because they figure, well, there's abuse involved in this house and somebody, one of these children may have witnessed it. So they, in an, in an over abundance of caution, often call the Department of Children and Families. So now you've got a restraining order. Now you've got a divorce. Now you have a Department of Children and Families. 
then here's what happens. The restraining order, if anybody understands how these things work, they, they have a stay-away provision for the most part. So if you happen to just drive by your house, for example, and the person who has that restraining order happens to see that, they'll call the police, the police then arrest you. Now you have a criminal case. Now you have four, four matters, four different courts, and your life for the next five years is pretty much ruined. You'll be lucky to keep your job because how are you gonna go to all the court hearings for all these different matters? And uh, it would take um, the, the strength of many, many people to, to endure this. And that's when they come to a lawyer many times is after all this has gone south. And it, it often happens in a very short period of time. All this stuff goes pow, 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 pow. Then they come to the lawyer, and then the lawyer has to sort of peel the onion back and try to deal with all of these things. But so I want you to watch restraining orders, in a sense, are sort of like the um, the entry drug in many, many cases. They give out tens of thousands of those every year in the Commonwealth. And they're a terrible thing for people who are using them for ulterior motives. Some people need them to stop violence, no question. Other people use them for very wrong reasons, and they oftentimes have an incredibly bad uh, effect of getting all these other, sort of triggering all this other stuff to happen, and people don't realize it is going to happen, and they start this this death spiral to their family that they didn't, didn't understand was going to happen and that they can't control. Then they come and say, oh, I wish I'd never done all this, but it's too late. And it takes a while to, to reverse all that stuff. So don't do that. If they go to massoutrage.com, um, will they get this learning? Will they, will they get this education? Oh, for goodness sake, yes, ahead of time. You, you'll see it all in living color. Lots of anecdotes, lots of stories, lots of how-tos. And, and you'll get it ahead of time so you don't get caught in that iron triangle of family law. But if it's already happened to you, you're going to get a how-to in a very, uh, a very um, down-to-earth way, a very practical way in English, not legalese, but in English, what to do and how to deal with it and how to come back from that. There's a lot of hope and help there for parents. And um, so, you know, that's, that's a resource there. I don't, I mean, it's, I've just had that up there for many, many years just to be a help to parents. I don't, uh, it's not my quote, law website or anything. It's just something I felt was necessary to do because lawyers won't explain this stuff to people. And uh, it's, it's it's such a mystery to everybody how everything gets so, uh, so, so messed up so fast and then what can be done about it. Because the system is ferocious on these things. And they they really put their foot down, and it causes so much pain and suffering. Um, before we sign off, I did. I think it's kind of fair. I don't want to put you in this position where you practiced before the before the law, before the bar. But I've been in probably an inordinate a number of courthouses in the Commonwealth covering stories and witnessing family destruction or family cases. Um, and the one thing that I've <clears throat> seen almost universally is that 
things are decided before they get to the court. Um, and by that, I mean the judge already has his or her opinion and where it's going to go. And sometimes it takes an, a really inordinate amount of actual evidence to, to, to change things. I'm thinking of one case where, thank God, um, one of the parties hired a private detective who had surveyed all the neighbors and got an eyewitness. And that saved that person from all kinds of problems uh, that were alleged by that person's spouse. I'm trying to keep it vague here. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is the courts in Massachusetts are full of a lot of people that you described that are also in DCF. Um, these are not your friends. Um, these no. are often politically pointies, and many of them come from certain ideological uh, backgrounds and just a whole different way of thinking and living. And it's not like I'm going to go to court and be judged by my peers. I'm going to go to court and be judged by some judge that doesn't like me because I am, and then fill in the blank, whatever it may happen to be. Um, you want to just touch briefly before, before have you had sure. anything? I do. I do believe that's correct in some cases. I, there are uh, judges I've appeared before who I have immense respect for. They have wisdom and they make good decisions. And then other ones, not so much. And it's, it's not consistent. Hey, don't get me wrong. I, I, I grew up my, in my uh, teenage years. My grandfather was a court clerk and, uh, he had a wonderful judge that he served for, and we had several opportunities to go to court to, you know, kind of witness, you know, Grampy in action. Um, you know, it, it was his kind of a late retirement job, if you will, and uh, he had a lot of fun doing it. And, uh, of course, he had some issues doing it, too, you know, having to deal with some tough, tough clients in courts. People don't know how to behave, it seems, in courthouses. But I just thought I'd mention it because when you had no, said early don't. on that, you know. And, and it occurs to me as we've spoken, there's probably one other aspect of this that the broadside has also covered a lot, and that's the, the elderly uh, end of this thing. We, we have the DCF with the children, but we also more and more now are getting to uh, government intrusion into elders and their care. And I think there's been so many articles on the broadside about misuse of elder law. I wanted to maybe, if you've got a moment, explain a little bit about that, too. Would that be of help? Yeah, go for it. Okay. So unlike DCF, which is a state agency, the elder care system is a very strange patchwork. It's about 25 private nonprofit corporations, which are elder services corporations which sort of do the same thing that DCF does and they have legal mandates that gives them government powers even though they're not government agencies it's it's a very uh, awkward situation where they have power but even less accountability than DCF does because they're private corporations so they too have snitch hotlines they have rules they can go in and investigate and they have even less accountability if that's possible than the child care system does or the the child uh, neglect and abuse system does and um their rules are vague and they come in and if they believe that an elder is not being cared for properly they have the right to go make a petition to take the to take the elder and put that elder into protective custody 
judge's order to allow it. But nonetheless, it's a low standard. And so, you know, as the the baby boomers age and, and others age out, there's a much larger percentage of, of older people in the Commonwealth now. So more and more people are finding themselves in the grip of this system. And um, it is so susceptible to manipulation by children who want to just be vultures and get mom and dad's money or um, friends who ingratiate themselves and want to be put in the will and then manipulate the maybe possibly beginning to be confused elder to, you know, to change their will or do something. This is a very, very difficult system to administer because how do you tell when somebody's doing that? How do you tell when there's an ulterior motive at work here rather than just a helpful child? So it's, it's really a problem. And I, I think that the way the Commonwealth has chosen to deal with it is not being effective at all. It's resulted in a huge amount of uh, unjust mistreatment of elders in their in their later years. It is, I can't really go into it all. Maybe we should really have a podcast about that whole thing because it's a it's, it's such a big category of, of problems. And the broadsides dealt with it, you know, and over over the whole time, basically that you've been been there um it's 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 such a big pool that you could we could have an article we could have 10 articles in every single edition it's 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 that um it's it's that it's really become such a terrible problem and it's handled so badly and the 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 judges in the in the uh family court um don't really deal with it all that well and a lot of these cases people don't realize this Let, let me just throw this in because here here is another hidden government um, barb. There are at all times on-call judges in all eight regions of the Commonwealth. Every region. Now, keep in mind, if you have a court, it's only open less than one-fourth of the hours in, in an average day. and uh, Or in an average week, let's say. Because if you have to call the weekends. So, they are able to deal with restraining orders, these on-call judges, a restraining order that comes in 3 a.m., they wake up the judge, and they read something to them over the phone, and the judge issues the order. It's the same thing with an elder. They want an emergency elder care order. They call up the on-call judge while the courts are closed, oftentimes gives this, this order that's going to completely change this whole person's life without having more facts than just can be communicated on a phone call from an elder services worker. And it just changes everything, takes the person into custody. And then what happens? Now the family has to spend the next couple of years trying to get the the person back. It's, oh my goodness, it's, people don't realize what's going on behind the scenes. So it'd be great to have an entire podcast to really deal deal with this. Actually, we should probably do several actually. We could probably do several just on that topic alone. Um, it, it really would. And, and you know, you wanted to wrap this up, but I, I want to tell you a big, huge thank you because I think that you're writing for the remnant, the people who have tried to stay true to the Constitution, to the laws, to tradition, to religion, which is mocked mercilessly in the Commonwealth now. Those people who are religious, who are... Uh, keen on trying to maintain our rights, 
they have almost nowhere to go. And the Boston Broadside has stood unflinchingly for these things. And unashamedly, too, by the way. I appreciate that. Thank you. I, I owe you a huge debt of gratitude for, for standing against the, <laughs> the tsunami of uh, socialism that we have in this Commonwealth. Well, thank you. It's tough to take a compliment, but that's one we should print <laughs> and share with our readers. Um, I guess just close out and uh, let folks know once again your name and where to contact you. Sure. I'm Greg Hessian. I'm actually in the western part of the state. I'm in Hamden County in the little village of Thorndike in the town of Palmer. And if you find yourself needing information about family law, you can go to my website, which is massoutrage, one word, massoutrage.com. And you're going to be a huge amount of information that will be very practical and helpful to, to deal with the issues that may come your way. Thank you so much for touching upon the, uh, this is really the tip of the iceberg for family law and a lot of court things here in Massachusetts. So thank you so much for sharing. Thanks for having me. Right. And so we close episode number three. And uh, as we go along, uh, I think we set a new bar here, of course. Uh, And I thank you listeners. And uh, you can always check us out at bostonbroadside.com or our 115th monthly edition. It just hit the streets in October. And uh, I think you'll enjoy it. We'll have an episode dedicated just to that edition and uh, have some of the writers uh, share their thoughts of how they got their stories, or their information and ideas, who they spoke with, and a little bit of the process of putting stuff together. Um, if you're not familiar with the broadside, it's very different from most newspapers in that you're the writers. And uh, if you go to some of the big papers and such, your material will never appear in those papers. Here it does. We try to get 30 to 40 different writers in every edition. Yes, we have some superstars and national writers and syndicated writers, but most of our heroes are the local writers. And we thank all of them. Signing off, my name is Lonnie Brennan. I'm the publisher and editor of The Broadside. And you can always reach us at 978-352-6800. Thank you. Have a blessed day.